When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1973, the Philadelphia Orchestra boarded a Pan Am 707 plane in Philadelphia for a once-in-a-lifetime journey, a multi-city tour of Maoist China, months after Nixon's history-making visit. There was drama immediately after they landed in Shanghai. Chinese officials asked for a last-minute change to the program, the addition of Beethoven's Sixth. After protests that the orchestra hadn't brought the scores with them, officials were returned with copies haphazardly sourced from across the country, with different notations and different notes, forcing the orchestra to make do. That's just one of the stories recounted in Jennifer Lin's book, Beethoven in Beijing, Stories from the Philadelphia Orchestra's Historic Journey to China, published by Temple University Press. The book stems from the work Lin did putting together a documentary film on the Philadelphia Orchestra's trip. With so much left on the cutting room floor, she decided to turn it into an oral history. Jennifer Lin is an award-winning journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker. She produced and co-directed the feature-length documentary, Beethoven in Beijing, which premiered on PBS's Great Performance of 2021. For 31 years, she worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer as a reporter, including posts as a foreign correspondent in China, a financial correspondent on Wall Street, and a national correspondent in Washington, D.C. She is also the author of Shanghai Faithful, Betrayal and Forgiveness in a Chinese Christian Family, and co-author of Soul Sisters, Stories of Women and Running. Her current documentary project is Beyond Yellowface, about two New York City dancers trying to rid ballet of offensive Asian stereotypes. Today, Jennifer and I talk about the opening of China, the Philadelphia Orchestra, and how that 1973 visit still resonates today. So, Jennifer, I want to thank you for joining me on the Asian Review of Books podcast today. You know, I want to start with maybe setting the historical scene, maybe. You know, people talk about Nixon's visit. They talk about ping pong diplomacy when it comes to China's opening, China's relations with the United States. But In your view, how important is the Philadelphia Orchestra's visit in the history of U.S.-China relations? Well, hello, Nicholas, and thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. And I'm really glad you started with this question because everyone knows about ping pong diplomacy, but not as many people are really familiar with the phrase music diplomacy. And I would argue that you know, music diplomacy has had an even more lasting impact on U.S.-China relations. So, uh, you know, as you pointed out, uh, Nixon made his historic trip to China in 1972. And both Nixon and Zhou Enlai wanted to improve kind of perceptions. And Zhou Enlai in particular was a big advocate of music diplomacy. And the idea was to bring over musicians, orchestras, as a way of changing those perceptions, which had hardened over the, you know, the previous 30 years. So, uh, you know, an element of this cultural diplomacy was bringing over an orchestra. The Philadelphia Orchestra was chosen by both sides. And it really had a very uh, lasting impact on 
both the American public and the Chinese public. Uh, you know, the the orchestra, it was the first American orchestra to, to perform in China, and it was such a well-received trip. The thing about the orchestra's visit, too, is it was the first of what would become 12 tours of China by the Philadelphia Orchestra. So it really was a way of, of kind of softening perceptions and creating kind of this cultural dialogue between the two countries. So it, it was very important. So that kind of leads me to maybe two questions. You can maybe have the same answer. Um you know, why an orchestra? Why classical music at all, as opposed to some other cultural exchange? And then also, why the Philadelphia Orchestra specifically, as opposed to any other orchestra? As far as why an orchestra, uh, you know, I China did have a tradition in, in orchestral music and orchestras dating back to the Shanghai Symphony, which was the oldest symphony in China. So, In 1949, there were orchestras in China, but as you may know, during the Cultural Revolution, uh, Western classical music was banned. Uh, So there was a desire to, in 1973, even though we were still in in the Cultural Revolution, there was a desire to kind of uh, bring an orchestra back to China to perform. And the Philadelphia Orchestra was actually the third orchestra to perform in China in 1973. The first was the London Symphony, and the second was was the, um, uh, let's see, it was the Vienna Symphony, I think. You'll have to check me on that one, Nicholas. But the, the intent was to improve U.S.-China relations. And so for that, the Chinese really wanted an American orchestra. And in a way, it could only be the Philadelphia Orchestra for for two reasons. One, it was Nixon's favorite orchestra. So when Nixon was inaugurated the second time, it was the Philadelphia Orchestra that traveled to Washington to perform at his inauguration, not the National Symphony. So it was kind of a snub to them. One of the reasons Nixon really loved the Philadelphia Orchestra is he he was a real um, he was an accomplished musician himself and appreciated classical music. And he always said that, you know, as a boy growing up, he would listen to the albums of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Uh, they were known uh, as a prolific uh, publisher of music. Uh, they had many, many albums t- uh, to their name. The reason the Chinese wanted to invite the Philadelphia Orchestra dates back really to 1940. And it was then that the Philadelphia Orchestra held a benefit concert in Philadelphia uh, to raise funds for for the Chinese war effort, in particular for the medical relief um, effort. And so they held this concert in 1940. They raised funds. And the Chinese officials, the Chinese government never forgot that. So when it came time for Zhou Enlai to pick an American orchestra to invite to China, it almost had to be the Philadelphia Orchestra. And when the orchestra arrived in China in 1973, this 1940 concert was brought up many times by officials, by Zhou Enlai, by the wife of, of Mao, uh, Jiang Qing. They all remembered. You know, they didn't forget that in 1940, the Philadelphia Orchestra was a friend of China. So they were the ones then that were selected because both Nixon and Zhou Enlai 
favored this orchestra. And Nixon, you know, had a very close relationship with the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra, Eugene Ormandy. In fact, he had given him a Medal of uh, of Freedom, uh, which is like the top honor you can receive in, in the United States by the president. So, so Nixon and Ormandy had this very tight relationship. You know, it's a, it's a great segue there, because my next question is actually about Ormandy. You know, in kind of reading your book and reading kind of the oral history, um, Ormandy, I'm trying to think of the most charitable way to put it, he seems kind of cranky. Um, he's always complaining about about what the um, the requests from U.S. officials, Chinese officials, the, the, the anecdote that really sticks out to me is the one where they're worried that he's going to struggle because um, his wife always cooks him dinner in the hotel room. Um, but in the end, it turns out he thinks Chinese food is great and he goes out all the dinners and it's totally fine. Um, but I wonder if you might kind of talk a bit more about Eugene Normandy and his ability to kind of lead this historic journey. Calling him cranky is very generous. He was a diva with, with a capital D, Nicholas. Um, he was like the last of these great imperious conductors. Uh, he led the Philadelphia Orchestra from the late 1930s. And he was he was a legend. He was a legend not only in Philadelphia but within the classical music world. There, there's a phrase in the United States of of the Big Five orchestras, and the Philadelphia Orchestra is one. The New York Phil, Chicago, Boston, and Cleveland. And so the these orchestras were led by these these powerful, uh, you know, overbearing, legendary conductors, and and Ormandy was of that ilk. Ormandy, when he traveled, he did not travel as a tourist. So when they would go to Europe or South America or Japan, he was there for for business. He wanted to introduce these markets to the orchestra, and it was all about touring. It was all about uh, expanding the market of the Philadelphia Orchestra. But with China, he was being asked to be a guest, and it was very hard for him to uh, adjust to this. So you brought up the fact that when he would tour, his wife would cook him his dinners in her in their hotel room. So before going to to China, the diplomats who were kind of coaching him and explaining to him what to expect said, "You know, Eugene, you, you really need to participate in some of these events." So he he did kind of uh, put aside, uh, you know, his his. He he did bend to the will of the Chinese, and he did participate, and he actually enjoyed himself. He participated in tours. They went to the Great Wall. They went to the Ming tombs. They went to see a ballet, the White-Haired Woman. And this is these are things that he would never do if he was traveling through Europe or or anywhere else in the world. So. Ormandy understood the importance of what they were doing. He really wanted to be the first American orchestra in China. So he grasped the history of the event. And that's one reason why he was being very accommodating. You know, in 1973, the United States didn't have an embassy in China. But after the Nixon trip, we had a liaison office. And there was a young diplomat there by the name of Nicholas Platt. And it was Nicholas Platt's job to basically escort Ormandy through China and also to explain to him kind of the importance of what was happening. And Nick Platt was able to communicate to to Ormandy that, you know, it, it was... 
it was very important for him to make an appearance. It was very important for him to act as a guest in China. So I think at the end of the day, Ormandy thought that U.S.-China relations were at stake if he didn't join them at the banquets. <laughs> but but he did end up enjoying himself. Uh, and, you know, he was a legend. He, he headed the Philadelphia Orchestra until 1981. Uh, and, uh, you know, Philadelphia also had another legendary conductor, uh, Leopold Stokowski, and, and Ormandy definitely did fill his shoes. So I, I mentioned kind of this in my introduction, um, but, you know, one of the big, well, actually, there were many changes to the program, both before and after their, their flight to China. Um, but let's talk about maybe the, the one after their flight, which is the last minute edition of Beethoven's Sixth. Um, you know, why was there such a big push to add this symphony to the program? And how did they hand, how did the orchestra kind of handle this last minute change? That's one of my favorite stories too. And the short answer is Madame Mao Jiangqing won at the sixth, but Nick Platt and Ormandy didn't really fully realize that until after the fact Nick Platt, when he was on the ground in Beijing, started hearing from his Chinese counterparts that there was a strong desire, quote, at the top for them to perform Beethoven VI. So this was kind of a last minute thing. And Nick Platt met the orchestra when they landed in Shanghai, and then they had to transfer onto a Chinese jet and fly up to Beijing. So it was Nick Platt's job to kind of break the news to Eugene Ormandy. And he tells a funny story about actually sitting next to Ormandy on this connecting flight from Shanghai to Beijing and telling him, Maestro, you know, there's a request from the top to, to perform Beethoven six. And Ormandy he would he was having none of it. He said, you, you know, I hate the six. I'm not performing the six. Uh, the reason he didn't like the six, according to musicians who performed for him, was that he felt it didn't show off the orchestra enough. He felt that Beethoven's fifth, which he was prepared to perform, really was more of a way for the orchestra to show off not the six. So Nick is on the plane sitting next to Ormandy and trying to to then persuade him to change his mind. And as he says, he started to, quote, make things up. And he said, he told Ormandy, he said, well, you know, the current leadership came to power. It was a peasant revolution. And the pastoral symphony, Beethoven VI, is all about peasants. So that's why there's this desire uh, from the Chinese leadership to perform the six, as, as Nick said, he was making it up, but it worked. Uh, you know, Ormandy was slowly persuaded that this is what he should, she should play. But then, you know, they land in Beijing and uh, there were negotiations late in the, in, into the night on what they would perform. And the American side brought up the fact, as you pointed out, they didn't have the scores. They weren't prepared to perform Beethoven six, and so the the counterpart, the Chinese counterpart to Nick Platt, said, "Don't worry, we'll get you the score." And indeed, they sent military jets to to other cities to Shanghai to gather scores uh, from the Shanghai Conservatory. They also got scores from the Central Philharmonic. They cobbled together 130 copies, and the the musicians who I spoke to said they were handwritten because a lot of these scores had been destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. And so they were filled with mistakes and musicians would be playing along. And, you know, as one musician said, whoops, you know, there's another one. 
But, you know, again, as, as a violinist told me, you're talking about the Philadelphia Orchestra. You're talking about Beethoven. They could have played this with their eyes closed and still gotten through it. But it was really Madame Mao, uh, Jiang Qing, who requested the Pastoral Symphony. Um, and, you know, two of the uh, music historians who were part of the documentary and and my advisors really on this project uh, Sheila Melvin and Jin Dong Tsai, uh, they wrote the very excellent book, Rhapsody in Red. But, you know, as they explained to me, uh, Zhang Qing knew classical music. You know, she was from Shanghai. She studied as an actress at the Film Academy. And so she was familiar with classical music, as were some of the other members of the Gang of Four. So um, as to why the six, uh, the real story, only Zhang Qing knows. But I think it was maybe just one she preferred over the fifth, which had more, uh, you know, as, as Jin Dong explains in our documentary and in the book, uh, the fifth is about fate. And the Chinese didn't believe in fate. And so she preferred the pastoral symphony. So Zhang Qing is really the reason uh, Eugene Ormandy had to bend uh, to the will of the Chinese hosts. And it would perhaps only be Mount Mao who could accomplish something like that, because Eugene Ormandy was not one to just change a program, uh, you know, at the start of a tour. I mean, imagine if he was touring, say, Europe. Uh, this would never happen. Uh, but this was, as Ormandy said, and I, I quote this in, in the book, this tour was about more than music. And Ormandy grasped the situation. He understood the history, and he was not going to do anything to really interrupt the tour. So it was all about diplomacy. You know, this this leads me to kind of my next question. I'm kind of moving things around a bit, um, but I, I did want to ask kind of about the politics of bringing this Western orchestra to China. Um, you know, I remember the the you know in your book that the reviews of the visit kind of were great when they were there, and then they all go back, and then suddenly People's Daily puts out a screed um, against their visit. Um, and I mean, it, it's hard to speculate. I guess the views of Western composers in Maoist China probably changed by the day, depending on who was in power on that particular day. But you know, what was kind of the Marxist, Maoist, whatever view on Western classical music. So, you know, culture and politics in China are always intertwined. And there were uh, power politics playing out behind this tour. So in terms of classical music, like after 1949, there was some deb debate at the top on what they should do about it. I mean, should they should orchestras in China continue to perform Beethoven? And it was decided that that yes, you know, there were certain composers uh, that would be appropriate uh, for for Chinese audiences. Beethoven was a favorite. Uh, you know, the Chinese have had a love with love affair with Beethoven that that dates way back. So it was really up until uh, 1966 that Chinese orchestras continued to perform Western classical music. In fact, in 1959, there was uh, the Central Philharmonic performed uh, Beethoven's Ninth uh, before, well, it was a televised concert. So uh, that, that was a, a very a high watermark when it came to classical music and the interest in classical music in China. But then 1966, 
Cultural Revolution, classical, Western classical music was considered too bourgeois. So in 1973, after the, the Nixon trip to China, it was really Zhou Enlai who was pushing this music diplomacy. And again, I, I, I cite Sheila, Melvin, and Jin Dong Tsai as, as the real experts on this. But there, you know, there were power politics being played out between Zhou Enlai and Jiang Qing over who would assume the mantle of power after Mao died. So Zhou Enlai really felt that that cultural diplomacy would be a way of changing perceptions. I go back to what I said before. And it wasn't just orchestras that they brought over to China, Nicholas. It was all types of, quote, culture, uh, particularly in the area of sports. So like in the summer before the Philadelphia Orchestra came to China, there were American swim teams that went over, collegiate swim teams. There were uh, college-level basketball teams that came over. You know, the Chinese were very interested in sports. And, you know, 1973 was the summer after Mark Spitz made his great appearance at the Olympics. So that's one reason they wanted swim teams, because they wanted to see how we did it. Um, so in the area of culture... Uh, you know, it was decided to bring over an orchestra and it was the Philadelphia Orchestra. But again, back to the power politics, uh, it was always assumed that, you know, there, there, was, there was a lot of tension behind the scenes between Jiang Qing and Zhou Enlai. And he was the one who was at the forefront of advocating for music diplomacy. The orchestra visited in September of 1973. In 1974, January, uh, the American diplomats in China woke up and they were reading the People's Daily. It's like, oh boy, here we go again. There was another crackdown on Western classical music. So, the you know the experts uh, you know, trying to read the tea leaves of what was happening. This was all a reflection again of this power play between Zhou Enlai and Madame Mao. The experts, though, you know the China watchers who I talked to, so Sheila and Jin Dong, as well as Nick Platt, they actually differ on what the power play was. Was it Madame Mao initiating an attack on Zhou Enlai because it was his idea of bringing over an orchestra? Or was it Zhou Enlai attacking Madame Mao because she was the one who went to the the performance of the Philadelphia Orchestra? So was it a way of digging her? We don't know. But it is. you can say that there was something happening be- behind the scenes between these two factions. And that, once again, classical music was being used as as the scapegoat, so to speak. And so in January of 1973 or 74, Beethoven was once again on the outs, as were all the other uh, Western composers. And that didn't end really until Mal died in 1976. And then, of course, we've seen a, a great revival of interest in classical music. So those were the power politics, Nicholas, playing out behind the scenes. So I think I, I have one more question about, the, I, I guess, about the program and the trip, and then maybe I'd like to talk about, I'd like to end with the resonance this visit still has today. But I wonder if you might talk a little bit about another late edition, and not quite as late as Beethoven's Sixth, but another late edition of the program, which was um, the Yellow River Concerto. Um, yeah, I remember some reading your book, you know, a lot of critics were quite rude about the concerto saying it was um i believe they used the word like schmaltzy um you know i wonder if you might talk about that particular piece of music um and how they i guess how the philadelphia orchestra decided to perform it 
first of all, I love the Yellow River Concerto, uh, but you know the critics did not. And as you cited, the, there was a critic from the New York Times, Harold Schoenberg, and he was one of only four reporters who were on the trip. And so Harold was an expert, and he derided the Yellow River Concerto. They had uh, performed it in a kind of a rehearsal concert at their summer residence in Saratoga, the Philadelphia Orchestra. And the Washington Post classical music critic also uh, trashed the Yellow River Concerto and calling it schmaltz and you know, nothing better than, than a film score music. Um, but the orchestra knew about the Yellow River Concerto, uh, probably advised by people like Nick Platt, as well as others who were China experts who they would have consulted before going on this historic trip. So they knew about it. And they had gotten uh, at least uh, the conductor's score to this, Um And the reason they wanted to perform this is there was a lot of thought and negotiations given uh, into the programs, what they would play. In the run-up to the trip, there were a lot of diplomatic cables going back and forth between the liaison office in Washington, uh, or excuse me, the liaison office in Beijing and their counterparts at the State Department over what the orchestra would play. So so Ormandy and the orchestra would suggest programs. They would send it over to the Chinese side in Beijing, and then they'd have to wait and wait and wait and hear back. And the Chinese would say no to a lot of the, the suggestions, like no Tchaikovsky, because the Chinese were on the outs with the Soviets at the time, and they didn't want to hear Tchaikovsky. Debussy, none of that, for whatever reasons. They didn't like him. So they had to negotiate the program as if they were negotiating a treaty. Um, the Ormandy, though, did want to to acknowledge his host and play some uh, local favorites. So the Yellow River Concerto was one of them. Um, and there's actually a very good story in the book, Nicholas. This didn't make the movie, but it is in the book. So they wanted to have a rehearsal concert at Saratoga before they went on tour. And they wanted to perform the Yellow River Concerto. So they invited the soloist who was going to perform with them in China. And this this musician, Yin Chenzong, was also one of the composers of the Yellow River Concerto. The concerto is based on a famous cantata in in China, but it was turned into a concerto by a committee. Um, But the committee was actually Yin Chenzong. He told Ormandy that in private, that yes, it says it was written by a committee, but this is, you know, the truth of the matter is he was the lead uh, composer of the Yellow River Concerto as well as uh, Li Dulon, the conductor of the Central Philharmonic. Anyway, back to my story. So they um, they invited Yin to come to Saratoga to perform with them uh, as a guest. And of course, you know, this is the Cultural Revolution. The Chinese government did not allow him to leave China. So the orchestra was in a pinch. They needed someone who actually knew the Yellow River Concerto. And by, you know, happenstance, they heard about this recent Juilliard graduate, uh, Daniel Epstein, and he had a copy of the score, the piano score, because he was, you know, this was the 1970s. He was kind of uh, very curious about China. And he himself, on his own, had approached the UN mission in New York and said, hey, I'm a 
American pianist. I'm interested in Chinese music. Do you have anything? And they had given him the piano score. So uh, Ormandy needed to find a pianist to perform with them. And it was literally less than two weeks before the concert in Saratoga in August of 1973. And he reaches out to, to Epstein and says, you know, would you like to perform with us? And Epstein was like, oh my God, you know, the Eugene Ormandy is calling me up. And he's, he kind of faked it. He said, yes, I know the Yellow River Concerto. And in fact, he hadn't. So he just like crashed studied this concerto. And he goes and he auditions for Ormandy. And Ormandy says, you're hired. Uh, let's go. So in a week's time, you have to perfect the Yellow River Concerto and perform with one of the greatest orchestras in the world. And so Epstein is like, you know, he's in a panic. And he starts like, practicing furiously back home in New York. And unfortunately, his mother-in-law in Japan had just passed away. And so he and his wife had to fly to Tokyo to attend her funeral. And then he had to fly back and immediately go up to Saratoga to perform with Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra. And he said only a 20-something would, would have the courage to do something like that. He said if it happened today, he doubts that he would have been able to do it. But Epstein performs with orchestra was a huge hit. And, uh, you know, it, it was one of the highlights of his life. Um, so then, you know, they, they went on tour in China with the Yellow River Concerto, and it was a huge success. And the Chinese audiences really did appreciate the gesture of the, this American orchestra performing their favorite uh, concerto in, in China. And, uh, you know, just as a side note, Nicholas, in 2008, I traveled to China with the orchestra because they were performing an anniversary concert to commemorate the 1973 tour. It was the 35th anniversary of that tour. And the pianist who who performed the Yellow River Concerto with the Philadelphia Orchestra was a young uh, pianist by the name of Long Long. And so, you know, Long Long performing the Yellow River Concerto in the same venue as they performed in 1973. For me, that was like, that was quite a moment uh, to witness that. So the Yellow River Concerto, the, the orchestra ended up recording it. Uh, and it was part of a commemorative album that they put out uh, for the 1973 tour. So I think this is actually a great segue to kind of my my last question, kind of these connections over time between um in some ways the the these past visits to china by by these orchestras and kind of classical music today and the classical music connections between china and the u.s today i guess kind of you know what's the legacy of of this visit what's the legacy of the 1973 philadelphia orchestra's visit to china the the, the legacy is that and this is going to sound corny, but I'm just going to say it, Nicholas, is that music connects us. And those connections are are real and they're robust. And these are lasting connections. You know, there's, there's so much focus uh, today on U.S.-China relations and how they're deteriorating by the minute. But really, the the uh, you know the foundation of the cultural relationship between the United States and China that was really established with this 1973 tour, those are lasting, and and hopefully resilient relationships um, for the orchestra in particular. The the legacy is that their connection to China is 
particularly deep. And, you know, I mentioned Long Long. Long Long has performed with the Philadelphia Orchestra in the U.S. as well as China more than 20 times. But the the one relationship that I highlight in the movie and in the book is the composer Tandun. And to me, his kind of journey as a musician illustrates the legacy uh, of this tour, because as Tandun tells the story, you know, he was sent down to the countryside as a teenager and he was working one day when, as you know, they used to broadcast news reports over loudspeakers because people didn't have radios, they didn't have TV. So they got their news from the daily reports. And he just heard a snippet uh, of of music from this report saying the Philadelphia Orchestra is in town. And, you know, as he says, you know, he had not been exposed to Western classical music and it was really kind of um, mind bending to hear it. Uh, You know, he, he ended up going to the central conservatory in 1979 uh, as for composition uh, studied in the United States and then kind of established himself as, as a composer. He's, best known, I think, by the American public for the score that he wrote for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. He he won a Grammy and an Oscar for that. Um, but as we highlight in the movie, uh, Tan Dun then established this relationship with the Philadelphia Orchestra, where they invited him uh, many times to perform some of his compositions. The first one was, I think, in 2004, he, the Philadelphia Orchestra performed something called The Map. But the big uh, collaboration was really Tandun's uh, symphony called Nushu. And this is part of the film. This is part of the book. The Philadelphia Orchestra presented that in Philadelphia and then took it on tour. So Nushu, composed by a, you know Tandun, made its premiere in China with the Philadelphia Orchestra in Beijing. They then took it to Tandun's uh, hometown. He's from Hunan. So Changsha, which wasn't part of the tour circuit for top tier orchestras, but they made a special point of performing Nushu's masterpiece in his home province. And, you know, Tan Dun explains in the book and also in the movie how, uh, you know, thrilling it was to to have the orchestra that inspired him then performing his piece in his home province. The 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 legacy, you know, uh, is that these types of relationships are really expanding and cementing. Uh, the The Shanghai Philharmonic has come to Philadelphia to perform side by side with the Philadelphia Orchestra. The NCPA, the National Center for P- Performing Arts Orchestra, has been to Philadelphia to perform. And there really is an in- intention of the orchestra to introduce American audiences to works by Chinese composers. Our film ends with a performance in Philadelphia of the, a symphony by a young Shanghai composer who was trained at Juilliard by the name of Peng Peng. Gong Peng Peng is his full name. And so that kind of illustrates how this relationship has evolved. Back in 1973, and then, you know, in the 70s and early 80s, this cultural bridge between the two countries was really going one way from the U.S. to China. But now the traffic is very much more of a going in two directions with, you know, many Chinese musicians coming to the United States, not only to study at conservatories, but to join top tier orchestras, uh, as there are also conductors of American orchestras 
the New Jersey Symphony, for instance, has a uh, Chinese-born conductor who is part of that first generation of musicians who uh, graduated from places like the Central Conservatory and the Shanghai Conservatory in the early 80s. So, you know, the the legacy uh, is that this revival of classical music interest in China is really energizing the entire world of music. Every top-tier orchestra in the world, London, Vienna, you know, you name it, they include Beijing and, and Shanghai on their touring schedules. Uh, that is, I should qualify before the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, post-pandemic, what it's going to look like is anyone's guess. Um, but before the pandemic, you know, China was very much, uh, you know, a part of, of the touring of, of world-class orchestras. So I think with that, that ends our interview with Jennifer Lin, author of Beethoven in Beijing, Stories from the Philadelphia Orchestra's Historic Journey to China. Jennifer, I actually have two more final questions for you, which is, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? I think we already talked about kind of what your next project is in the in the introduction. Um, but kind of what, what's the next project? Yes. Yeah, so uh, they can find the book uh, on Temple University Press's website and order it there. And as for the movie, um, it, it did premiere on PBS. So it's available on their streaming platform, which is called Passport. Or they can rent the movie by going to our website, uh, BeethovenInBeijing.com. And uh, my next project is another documentary, but this time I'm focusing the lens on the ballet world and asking the question, how can you take an art form that sprang from the imagination of European men in the 18th and 19th centuries and make it more relevant to audiences today? So uh, that, that's, that's the latest documentary. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to agentreviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And there are many more author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. There are podcasts on your favorite, favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want us to con- if you want us to continue to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Lachlan Fleetwood, author of Science on the Roof of the World, Empire, and the Remaking of the Himalaya. But before then, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas. I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs>